0: I heard about an Indian chief came to Christ. Amazing, amazing story. He went back to his tribe and of course they were very curious as to how this had happened. And he didn't say a lot, but he just kind of went over they were sitting around the campfire. And he reached over and he picked up a worm that was crawling on a piece of wood. And he took that worm and he put it on some leaves that were there yeah. this, you know, with them. And he grabbed a stick of fire from the fire and lit the leaves. And that worm began to scramble all around trying to find a way to get away from those flames. And just about the time that the flame surrounded this worm and was about to consume it, the chief reached in and grabbed the worm, and the leaves were completely consumed. And he held up this little worm that was crawling on his finger, and the chief held it out to his friends and said, Me, that worm. He had a great concept of the grace of God. Well, you know what? You're that worm, and I am. The grace of God is the reason that we can stand before God. It's nothing, as we read today in the first service, those wonderful verses from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, that it is not by works that we are saved. It is simply by grace, by grace through faith. Grace is a great thing, but you know grace, it has problems. It has problems. Now, it doesn't have problems in and of itself, we have problems with God's grace. And there are two problems specifically that I want to talk about this morning. Uh, no matter where you are in your walk with God, or if, even if you're not walking with God, we have problems, one of two, at least one of two, of these problems with God's grace. Uh, turn it with me, if you would, to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings. Um, I thought you know, we could look at the problems with, of, with God's grace by looking at Romans, because Paul deals with these problems. There's one of the person who doesn't know, Jesus Christ. You know, we could look at the first part of Romans, particularly chapters 1 through 5. But then there's also another part, another problem with God's grace, in the middle part of Romans, uh, particularly Romans 6 and 7. But instead of just looking at the epistles, as wonderful as they are, I thought we'd look at a story. A story that illustrates well, very well, the problems with God's grace. It's the familiar, or maybe not so familiar, story of Naaman. Naaman, in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5. Uh, So let's kind of get our bearings and read... Uh, Just the first verse, and then we'll kind of talk about some background to this wonderful chapter. We're going to go through the whole chapter, chapter 5 here. Verse 1, Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master, and highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. That last little part of that verse sort of hits you with a gasp. Here you have this, this amazingly powerful individual, Naaman. We're told he is the captain of the army of the king of Aram. So he is the head of the whole army. We're told that he was a great man with his master. So his, his king is, sees him as a great man, and he is highly respected. So you have these three things going for him. He is—you could probably, you could compare him to, you know, today's uh, heavyweight champion or or gold medalist, multi gold medalist, or a movie star with a string of great movies. You couldn't ask for more worldly success or acclaim. But the text tells us there's one catch: he's a leper. Such a great man, except that he's got this terminal disease. There's no cure for leprosy. And so to have leprosy was basically just a time bomb clicking until it was until you died. Leprosy uh, was a terminal disease. And no matter how great this man was, no matter how much money he had, all the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't do a thing for this wonderful uh, man. Now, notice that it said that the Lord had given him victory, had given victory to Aram. Aram, if you were to look at a map in your Bible, in fact, if you've got a Bible with maps, um, look at the back and find one that sort of shows the big picture there of Israel and the Old Testament. And to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee, you should see up there by Mount Hermon, just east of Mount Hermon in the area of Damascus, it should say Aram. The Arameans, Aram was uh, a neighbor and pretty much a regular enemy of Israel. And Aram at this time was an enemy of Israel. They were given victory, it says, by the Lord. Now why in the world would the Lord give victory to an enemy of Israel? Because, remember the context of 2 Kings, this is during the divided kingdom, And the kingdom is divided because of the sin of Solomon. And the northern kingdom is called Israel. And all of its kings, all 20 of its kings were godless. None of them followed the Lord. And the Lord had made a covenant with Israel and said, If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. And your enemies will come in and wipe you out. And that is part of what was going on. God was allowing this foreign invader to come in and discipline Israel so that they would repent. Of course, they never did. So here you have this, this king who has this general named Naaman with this terminal disease. Naaman knew that he could do nothing to be healed. He was totally helpless, and honestly, he was right where God needed him to be, to be a recipient of His grace. Um, God can't get through to us a lot of times until we realize that we need Him if we are powerful like Naaman was, if we have national acclaim, if everyone around us is telling us how wonderful we are and how powerful and great and popular, it's really tough to hear the tap on the back of our heart where the Lord says, you know what, you're not holy and my standard is holiness. And if you're going to have a relationship with me, then you've got to be holy like I am. It's hard to hear that truth. When everyone around you says, you're not only great, you are a cut above everybody else. So Naaman realized he needed help. But what can you do? Nobody has ever healed leprosy, uh, especially here in Aram. So look at verse 2. See what, what God does in His sovereignty. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who was from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send you a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver, and 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now, as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Often, when we are ready to hear it, when our need has gotten so great that we can't ignore it any longer, God sovereignly puts someone in our lives. And we'll finally listen. In Naaman's case, it came from a little girl who was captured from Israel. Don't you just love the irony of that? Here you have the most powerful man, second to the king, in all of Aram, and his hope relies on the word of a captive slave girl from Israel. The good news is that there is hope for Naaman. She says, in the capital of Israel, in Samaria, there is a prophet who can solve Naaman's problem. Not only solve Naaman's problem, but the the whole potential future security of Aram relies on the words of this little slave girl. That's the power of God. That's the sovereign power of God in our lives, to bring His truth in such a way that we would never have imagined it. So the king sends Naaman with a letter and a lot of money to the king of Israel. And look what happens. Look how the king responds, verse 7. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Here's the sort of sad irony about this situation. The king of Aram believed. That there was a prophet in Israel. The general of Aram believed there was a prophet in Israel. When the king of Israel gets this letter, it never even occurs to him to send them to Elisha, the prophet of Israel. And so Elisha has to say, you know what, why don't you send him to me and he will know that there's a prophet. You still obviously don't know that there's a prophet, but send him to me and, uh, and we'll take care of this problem. So, so this is what happens. Verse 9, Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Just picture that. Picture this large gathering of horses and chariots and all these important people and all this money with wagons being brought there at the doorway of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious, and he went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Pharpar the rivers of Damascus, Better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away, so he turned and went away in a rage. You know, Naaman's response, it's easy for us to look at Naaman and go, Oh, Naaman, don't you get it? Until we realize that the Bible is not just written to give indication about Naaman's problem, but about ours. We're Naaman, aren't we? When the Lord tells us, look, here's what you need to do, we'll turn away in a rage and say, well, that's really not how I pictured it. That's not what I want to do. Lord, I hear very clearly from your word, from the prophet, from us, from the the prophetic scriptures of what we're supposed to do, and yet that's not how I pictured it. That's not how I want it to happen. So rather than do what it says, we turn away in a rage and we decide we're going to completely ignore it. This was Naaman's problem. I think sometimes we get the impression that in order to have a significant experience or a significant religious experience, we have to see a vision or hear a miracle or a hear a voice or see Jesus' face in a taco or something. It's got to be something out of the ordinary. It's got to be something special, you know? Um, you've seen those, think, those news clips where people see Jesus in a taco or on a tortilla and and then there's, there's this shrine or this uh, anyway it does you know we don't have to have that experience to have a significant religious experience the lord has given us a very simple way to communicate with him through prayer and to hear from him through the word it it it's not flashes of lightning it's very simple and i think the simplicity of how he communicates with us is one of our problems One of the problems with God's grace is that it's too easy. That God makes it too easy. We want it to be a great religious experience. Instead, God says, Nope, I'm going to get the credit for this. All you've got to do is believe me. This man who was the pride of Aram, this man who was so highly respected, and notice that Elijah doesn't even come out personally. He sends a messenger picture. You've got Naaman with all his chariots and wagons and all this gold. I mean, they've come all the way from Aram, and Elisha won't even walk outside the house. And Naaman is offended. His pride is offended. He sends a messenger, a little messenger, instead of the prophet himself coming out. And not only does he not do this wonderful ceremony of healing, he says, you know what? On your way back to Aram, stop off at the Jordan River, and just dip seven times, and you'll come up clean. It's too easy. It's too easy. And so Naaman rejects it. So the first lesson that we can get from this text is very simple. It's very simple, and yet it's it's a speed bump that we struggle with a long time. Unbelievers can be offended by God's grace and miss the only means of salvation. Unbelievers can be offended by God's grace and miss the only means of salvation. Like Naaman, we have a terminal disease as well, it's called sin. And there's no cure for it. In and of ourselves, we're going to die from it. It's going to take our lives physically, and it's going to take our lives spiritually. In fact, we're born spiritually dead. And except for the grace of God, there is no cure for this. But God has provided a cure, and we know that through the Lord Jesus. If it is our sin that is our problem, then it is our sin that has to be removed. So imagine that this lectern or this pulpit here is is my sin. And pretend that you're God just for a moment. Just for a moment. Just pretend that you're God. This is between us. It's got to be removed. Now, I could probably remove move this, but that would be a little hard, so I'll just I won't do it. I'll just... Walk beside it. Now now there's nothing between us. But if our sin is a problem, our sin is what has to be removed. And that's what Jesus did. He took it and he completely moved it away to where now there's nothing between us and the Lord. And that's easy. And yet, because it is so easy, it is incredibly difficult. Because it assaults our pride. We want a religious experience that is fantastic. God says, I simply want you to believe to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. God's grace is offensive to every other religion in the world. All religions say that you can get to God or your version of God by living a good life, by basically, um, you know, living a life that is faithful. And the problem is you don't. Um, I heard about uh, a truck driver in Nebraska who was at a grocery store. True story. I read this in some paper or something a while back but a, a nebraska truck driver was at a grocery store between deliveries and an assistant manager saw this truck driver grab a peanut they had a you know a rack of just peanuts right there and he the truck driver grabbed a single peanut cracked it open and ate it well the assistant manager called the police and the police came and gave this guy a ticket And the guy said, wait a minute, look, I'll pay. It cost a penny. He says, look, I'll just pay for it. And the policeman made this statement, and it just jumped out off the page at me. The police captain said that he was ticketed, quote, not because of the magnitude of the crime, but simply because it was illegal. And I thought, you know what? It's exactly the same way with God. You may think that the sin that you've committed in your life is peanuts. In fact, it may even just be one peanut may be very small, especially compared to everybody else. But that one sin is all it takes to be an offense to a God who is completely holy. And for you to, have, to come into the presence of a God who is holy, you have to be holy as He is. So our sin has to be taken away. You can crawl to Mecca on your elbows and it will never take away your sin. Your sin is the problem. Your sin is what has to be dealt with. Lewis Smeeds made this statement. He said, why do we call grace amazing? Grace is amazing because it works against the grain of common sense. Hard-nosed common sense will tell you that you are too wrong to meet the standards of a holy God. Pardoning grace tells you that God forgives you in spite of so much that you do is wrong. God's grace is free to you, but it isn't cheap. It costs Jesus' life. It's the easiest thing, because for us it's simply to believe. But it's the hardest thing, because for us it is simply to believe. It affronts our pride. Well, Naaman almost missed it. He almost missed it, if it were not for his wise servants who spoke up. Look at verse 13. His servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. What wisdom these servants had. You know, you would have been willing to do something hard. Why aren't you willing to do something simple? It's the same in our relationship with Christ. If you're willing to walk to Mecca on your elbows, then why are you not willing to simply believe in Jesus Christ? It wasn't until Naaman humbled himself and came to God on God's terms that the grace was made effective through faith. It's by grace you're saved, through faith. God's grace is available to all, but it's made available. It's applied to you when you believe, when you believe, when you take God at his word. Well, and the effect was immediate. He was healed. Look at verse 15. When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So please, take a present from your servant now. But he said, as the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. I love it now that Elisha does come out on the return. And and Naaman doesn't just say, you know, you guys go on ahead. I'm going to go back and thank him. Naaman takes the whole party back. Right again to Elisha's door. This time, Elisha comes out, and Naaman basically says, I just came back to say thanks. And I'm so appreciative. Uh, I believe that there is no God except God in Israel, and I want to give you this gift as, as a way of saying thank you. But Elisha refuses. As the Lord lives, he says, I will take nothing. Naaman urges him, he still refuses still refuses to take it. You know, you might wonder, well, why? Why, Elisha? Why why not take the gift? I mean, there's there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. We won't read it, but if you were to glance back at the chapter just prior to this in 2 Kings 4, Elijah had no problem receiving the gift of a nicely furnished room, um, stayed with the Shunammite and her family there on a regular basis, and accepted that gift, no problem. But accepting this gift from Naaman gave a different implication because Elisha wants to attach no reward to what God did by His grace. He wants there to be no reward, nothing monetary at all attached. This is why Paul, when when Paul, for example, would be, took up tent making. He said, I wanted to be able to offer the gospel completely free so that no one could have any misunderstanding about my motives. Not only about my motives, but about the gospel. It's free. All you have to do is to believe. Elisha did not accept the gift because he knew that Naaman brought those things initially thinking that they would buy his healing. And even though Naaman knew that he was healed by God, Elisha wanted to attach nothing to God's grace. And also, when Naaman returned to Aram, he wanted Naaman's testimony to be he did it free. He didn't accept any of these gifts that you sent, King. There is a God in Israel, and he is a God of grace. So Elisha says, I'm not going to take anything. So Naaman leaves. And through Gehazi now, Elisha's servant, we find the second problem with God's grace. Look at verse 20. Verse 20. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this Naaman, the Aramean, by not receiving from his hands what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. Gehazi was dumbfounded that Elisha passed the opportunity to receive a gift. If you have the New New, uh, International Version, it says, my master was too easy on Naaman. It's not clear what Gehazi means here. Maybe he thought that an enemy of Israel ought not get off that easy. Maybe he thought Elisha blew an opportunity that God was providing for them. It seems like when you read through him these poor prophets in Israel, they're such a minority, they were always struggling financially. What a great opportunity God has provided for Elisha and all the school of the prophets. Whatever reason, Gehazi intended to use this situation for personal benefit. Look at verse 21. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? He said, All is well, My master has sent me, saying, Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. Naaman said, Be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them before him. When he came to the hill, he took, uh, he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house and sent them in a and they departed. Gehazi lies. There's no other way to say it nicely. Gehazi says, look, Elisha was too easy. I'm going to go fabricate this story that, first of all, Elisha sent me. My master sent me. He didn't send him. Two prophets, two young men of the prophets came and they're in need. No, they didn't. And then he even lies as far as his motives. Verse 23 Be pleased to take two talents, Naaman says, and he urged him. In other words, Ghazi was saying, Oh, no, not two, not two. He urged him and he took it. Notice he urged him and he took it. And back up in verse 16, he urged Elisha, but he refused. See that contrast. And then he came to the hill, and he hides it in his house. And then he departs. And Naaman now returns to Aram with the news that the God of Israel has accepted a gift. The second problem with God's grace. If the first problem is that God's grace can be offensive to unbelievers... We also have a problem with it as believers, and it's this. Believers can abuse God's grace and miss the surprising blessings of obedience. This is a hard one, because this is where we live, isn't it? I almost said believers can abuse God's grace and the fallout is never worth it, as we'll see. And it isn't. It's never worth it. But rather than dwell on the negative, let's dwell on the positive we can miss the surprising blessings of God's grace. Who knows what blessing would have come to Gehazi if he had simply obeyed and not uh, run after and take advantage of this opportunity. Even as Christians, we have the freedom to do what we want to do. God never stops you when you get to the point of deciding that you're gonna sin or not sin, that you're gonna say the words that are hurtful or you're gonna bite your tongue you're going to do this and that that you know you shouldn't do, or even entertain a thought or a motive that's impure. The consequences are never worth it. But not only that, we can miss the surprising blessing of obedience. Keep your finger here in 2 Kings and turn to the New Testament for a moment and look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2 verse 16 1 Peter two sixteen. it's really tough to just pick this one verse out of this whole context because it fits so well but we just don't have time to get in the big picture but this verse says it well Peter writes act as freemen, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil but use it as bond slaves of God act as freemen. you're free you really are God's grace has freed you, but don't use your freedom as a covering for evil. Don't use God's grace as an excuse, as a license to sin, but rather use it as bond slaves to God. Let the freedom that God has given you be the motivation that you are God's servant, rather than the motivation being to abuse God's grace. There was a a close friend of W.C. Fields one time who found W.C. in his dressing room reading the Bible. Can you imagine W.C. Fields reading the Bible? He was reading the Bible in his dressing room, and his friend walks in and says, Is that the Bible? W.C., what are you doing? And he slammed it shut real quick and he said, I'm just looking for (laughs) loopholes. That sounds like something W.C. would say, isn't it? Anyone who talks about the grace of God has to deal with its apparent loopholes. You mean to tell me that I can believe in Jesus and all my sins, past, present, and future, were paid for on the cross? And future? You mean that all of my sins were paid for? Yes. In fact, how many of your sins had you committed when Christ died on the cross? At that point, they were all future. And so it's the same right now. What do you do with those who take advantage of the grace of God? Romans asks that very same question when Paul says, Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Shall we sin because we can get away with it, basically, if we could paraphrase it? And Paul goes on to say no. Because willful sin leads to the results of sin, ultimately, physical death. Sure, you'll be forgiven. Sure, you are forgiven if you've placed your faith in Christ. But living that way can kill you. So there's negatives, but there's also the surprising, missing the surprising blessing of obedience. Just like we saw with the judgment seat of Christ last week. Remember that we're going to all stand before the judgment seat of Christ And we will receive rewards for all the things that we do with good motives. And all of us will receive one, at least something. God's grace in your life has produced at least something. So grace may cover forgiveness of sins, but not always the consequences of it. And what Gehazi did was basically give Naaman a reason to boast in what he gave. What Gehazi did was give the king of Aram a reason to boast in what he gave rather than standing in awe of God's grace. What Gehazi did was give the impression that God's prophet needs no gift one minute, but the next minute he does. What Gehazi did was put the Lord God on the level of every other God who gives, only because he receives. So look what happens now when Gehazi goes to Elisha. Verse 25. But he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. Now, why lie to a prophet? (laughs) Not Not paying attention. Why lie to a prophet? Your servant went nowhere. Verse 26. Then he said to him, Aren't these words tender? Did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever so he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. It is a severe discipline, but it's also poetic justice. Gehazi got to keep all the stuff, but along with the stuff, along with Naaman's money, he got Naaman's disease. And notice, sin is not only never worth the consequences personally, but you never have And you never realize the fallout that's going to come not just to you personally, but also to your family. Because he said, the leprosy shall cling to you and to your descendants. Now, some some of us, um, some of you in this room have learned this lesson too late. I realize that. In fact, to one degree or another, we all have. We've all made decisions that if we could go back, we'd give anything to do that day over. But we can't. We've learned the good and the bad of God's grace. God's grace, the good part is that he forgives us completely. The bad part is that it doesn't erase the consequences. And we live with those consequences. Not only do we do, but our family does. And that's hard. That's hard. But you know what we don't have in here? We don't have any record of Gehazi saying, you know what, Elisha, you are right. You are right. I should not have done that. There's nothing. There's, there's none of that. Now, maybe he did, but clearly it wasn't the intent of the author to record that. So we don't want to read too much into it. But you know God's grace is also big enough, like in the case with Miriam, who because of her rebellion against Moses received leprosy and the intercession of Moses and Aaron, uh, her leprosy was healed. Who, said, who knows? But maybe Elisha could have prayed for Gehazi at his genuine repentance and he could have been healed. I don't know. But here's why I bring that up. Maybe it's not too late in your life. Maybe the Lord has allowed you to continue living with the consequences not just so that you can feel bad about it, but so that you can turn in your heart from whatever it was, or you can realize, you know what? God can still make good out of what I've done with my life because his grace is that big. And it really is. It really is. You can begin to be a counselor to others and give wise insight to those who are coming behind you. God's grace is that big. Jesus would later say, when he was in the synagogue there in Nazareth, to his own hometown, um, you remember that story in Luke chapter 4 where, where Jesus is there and he's talking to his hometown people and he said, you know what, a prophet is not received in his own hometown. And he gave the example of Naaman. And he said, there were a lot of lepers in Israel during the time of Naaman. But not one leper was healed except this foreigner. The foreigner was the one who believed. God's own people didn't get it. And of course they didn't like that and they wanted to throw Jesus off the Nazareth Ridge down into the Jezreel Valley. But the point that Jesus was making is, you know what was true of, e- of Elisha back then? They didn't realize that that prophet wasn't accepted. The king had, didn't point him to Elisha. The same was also true of Jesus. God's own people missed it. And so this second, this second uh, uh, problem with God's grace, I hope that you don't walk out of here and just kind of let the message seep through the cracks of your memory. Because the second problem with God's grace, that is that we tend to abuse it. Um, it's often abused by believers. I hope that you won't be like Nazareth. I hope that you won't be like the king of Israel. I hope that you won't be like many in the church today that believe that simply because they place their faith in Jesus, they can live however they want to live. You can, but why would you want to? Why would you want to? The one who has laid down his life for our sins, why would we we not want to live our lives completely for his glory? rather than uh, take advantage of His grace. Thomas Brooks said this word, Saving grace makes a man as willing to leave his sins, as a slave is willing to leave his galley, or a prisoner his dungeon, a thief his bolts, or a beggar his rags. Let me try that again. Saving grace makes a man as willing to leave his sins, as a slave is willing to leave his galley, or a prisoner his dungeon, or a thief his bolts, or a beggar his rags. Naaman was initially insulted that all he had to do was believe. All I got to do is believe this crazy command to dip in the Jordan and I'm healed? Yes, God's grace is often offensive to unbelievers. Gehazi, on the other side of the coin, is initially shocked that Elisha takes no money, takes money in secret, and thus is disciplined. Second lesson, God's grace is often abused by believers. Offensive to unbelievers, abused by believers. These are the problems with God's grace. But by God's grace, we will strive not to miss, not to miss these problems. We will recognize them. We will be aware of them. And we will not be guilty of them and miss the surprising blessings of obedience. Well, as we Bow in prayer. If you'll bow with me, I want to read, begin our prayer with a few verses from the great little book of Titus. Listen as I read to you Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and following, and then we'll pray. Paul writes, "...for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, for good deeds. Father Paul's words are a wonderful summary of this story that we've seen in 2 Kings of Naaman, Elisha, and Gehazi. Grace is wonderful, but it has problems. It's offensive to the unbeliever. And we pray, Lord, we pray for anyone who is here this morning who is stumbles over the simplicity of the gospel, that you would open their heart to see the light of the glory of God in the gospel and the simple truth that if they will believe that Jesus died for them and rose again, that their sins are forgiven. (laughs) And for the rest of us, Lord, who believed that some of us many, many years ago, Help us to not take advantage of that, or for one moment, like Peter say, Peter writes, that we would forget our purification from our former sins, that we would somehow miss the grace of God and live a nearsighted life where we forget what God has done for us, and instead we take advantage of His grace and live the way we want, say what we want, rather than filter all of our life and motives through the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, we ask for your grace to not only be a term that we are aware of and a definition that we love, but a practical application in our life and a motivation that we live faithfully. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.